to Hidden Amongst Us. My name is Morgan Flynn, and on this podcast, we will discuss and learn about one cold case from each New England state. Cold cases have definitely seen an uptick in the number that get solved due to the many advancements in DNA. The cases I will share with you will range in different decades and years, as well as how each murder was committed. It's important to understand that someone whose case got lost many years ago is no less important than someone who is lost today. On this episode, we will be talking about Sheila Holmes from Dover, New Hampshire. Sheila grew up in parts of Dover and Rochester with her sister, Cindy. Cindy described Sheila as very selfless, saying that she would do anything for anybody, not having a bad bone in her body. The two grew up sharing everything and holding onto a strong bond. They shared a room, clothes, friends, and became very much inseparable as the years went on. This relationship carried into their adulthood when Cindy moved in with Sheila at one point to help with the kids. Sheila's husband at the time was a truck driver, so rarely resided in the house to take care and support of the five children they shared. Cindy did her best while working full-time to help make dinner, run baths, and clean the house for Sheila. That's just what sisters do. Now that we know a little bit about Sheila Holmes and who she was, let's get into the case. On the morning of April 13, 1990, a passerby discovered Sheila's body around 9 a.m. She was lying on the ground, partially unclothed, on the railroad tracks between Forest Street and Broadway in Dover. 31-year-old Sheila was badly beaten and strangled to death. She had multiple broken ribs as well as a lacerated artery. The autopsy later performed showed that the cause of death was strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head. I'm going to pause right here just to analyze what we know. So, Sheila's found dead with many injuries from being badly beaten. Looking at the cause of death and her injuries, this is overkill. She's been killed by being beaten over the head and then she was strangled. There are many other fatal injuries that don't have to do with the direct cause of death, including the lacerated artery, and the fractured ribs. This leads me to believe that she was first beaten over and over until she was in a very weakened state. And then, to infer that she was dead, the offender strangled her. At this point, it is clear that this is not a fight gone wrong or that murder was unintentional in the first place because the offender very well could have left her in order to succumb to her own injuries or hurt her just to send a message. Instead, the offender finished it off himself and he strangled her as he watched her take her very last breath. Now, if you noticed before, I used the word he. The reason I said he is purely based off of speculation. For someone to die by strangulation takes a lot of energy and brute force. 
When it comes to killing, men tend to take a much more violent route to death using their hands or a close contact weapon, while women often use poison, pills, or even guns. It takes approximately three minutes for a person to die by strangulation and only about 10 seconds for them to pass out. This means that after they've stopped fighting back and trying to get away from the situation, you've still got to hold that position for a little under three minutes to ensure the person dies. For these reasons, I think that whoever did this was a man and was not afraid of getting caught in the act. Since strangulation takes a long time, you must be vulnerable enough and patient enough to wait till everything is said and done. Because the train tracks are so secluded, he wasn't worried, not about being caught and not about time. The police believe that because of the secluded location, that not only was the offender close with the area, but also with Sheila herself. You wouldn't just happen upon the tracks, nor would someone ever meet up there to go with a complete stranger there at night. The next step for the police was to backtrack Sheila's steps. The night before Sheila was discovered, she had been at a nightclub called St. Jean's, which is no longer there in Dover. She left shortly after 11 p.m. to drive and pick up her boyfriend who worked in Summersworth, New Hampshire. Roughly just a 20-minute drive, and Sheila never made it to her boyfriend. The boyfriend then immediately became the first suspect. Maybe he met her somewhere and forced her out of the car, brought her to the tracks, and then killed her. Sheila's sister Cindy even thought it was him because she said that he wasn't nice to Sheila and would hit her often and drink a lot. Maybe it was one of those nights for him and he lost it. But the police spoke with him many times for hours upon hours and there was never enough evidence to point to him being the offender. The area was canvassed, neighbors were spoken to, and a big focus was on St. Jean's. Now, during that time, the only people going to St. Jean's were people who lived nearby and were residents. It's all very tight-knit. You wouldn't see local college kids from UNH there or families. This helped, but only to point to people who were not suspects. Everyone in the club was able to be accounted for and many even knew Sheila, so they were very forthcoming with the police. Because nobody was suspected and evidence was lacking, the case became ongoing for many years. Fast forward almost a decade and there's a suspect in the case, Edward Pahowick. A woman by the name of Carol Caswell disappeared in 1996 and her body was discovered in 1998 with their prime suspect being Pahowick. Carol resided in Portsmouth, New Hampshire so the police department from there took the case. Dover police got word of the case and wanted to interview Pahowick as well because they believed there were connections between both cases. Both women had disappeared after leaving a bar late at night and had very similar injuries from their offender. With Pahowick in custody, both departments interviewed him over the course of two days. At first, they only discussed Carol Caswell to get all the information from that. The reason Pahowick was in custody in the first place was due to the fact that he had beaten and raped his girlfriend. She reported this and also told police that he had confessed to killing Caswell to her. Really, during that interview, they were looking for his true confession. 
At first, he denied it, but eventually, when presented with all the physical evidence, he confessed to killing Carol, but with an accomplice. A man by the name of Merrill Tompkins, more known as Mickey, was said to be his accomplice. When Mickey was tracked down, he admitted his involvement, but only helped to transport the body. Next, they started to bring up Sheila Holmes. This is where things start to get iffy. One thing Pahowick did constantly is backtrack. He made multiple admissions about murdering Sheila and placed himself at the scene of the crime. And then he would talk out loud to himself, asking if he should continue or stop where he was and not incriminate himself further. One interesting thing Pahowick seemed to be proud of was a tattoo on his left shoulder of a panther claw, made to look as if it's clawing its way out. Detective asked Pahowick what it meant or what it was for, and he replied, hunting. Detectives followed this up with, hunting for what? To which Pahowick replied, women. When asked how many women, he said, maybe four or five. When called a serial killer, he seemed upset and distraught even, but he wouldn't elaborate or share anything more. And later on, when asked if he would say anything about it, he replied, maybe someday. So there may be another woman or many women out there who haven't been found yet, but whose lives were taken in the hands of Pahowick. Let's break this down a little bit. Pahowick has a tattoo, which he openly shared is a representation of hunting women. This is self-incriminating. He knows he is the main suspect in this case. And so some may see this as messing with the cops because he knows they don't have enough evidence on him, but he wants to toy with them. Another interesting thing is how he basically said that he has murdered roughly four or five women. But when he was accused of being a serial killer, he seemed ashamed. To me, this shows that Pahowick is not a psychopath like many people may associate with being a serial killer. When someone has absolutely no remorse for another and does not see them as a human being, but instead as objects or pawns in their life, they are considered a psychopath. Although I don't think he has remorse for his victims, he may be ashamed of being called a serial killer. This could be due to childhood issues or even the fact that he doesn't equate his acts to someone that is a serial killer. Eventually, over the two-day period, on the second day of interviewing, Pahowick recanted everything he had said. At this point, Dover police believed that they had had their guy. Eight years later, and they got him. Unfortunately, the attorney general's office didn't believe there was enough evidence to prosecute him, so the case didn't go to trial. Let's go back to Sheila's sister here for a minute, Cindy. When Cindy got word of who was being questioned for the murder of her sister, 
She was just confused. Cindy had no idea who Bahawik was or why he would want to hurt Sheila. But as time went on, over the course of just a few days, Cindy realized that he's connected to them. Her cousins grew up with him, so there's a possibility that the two knew each other. Now, this creates a whole new field of possibilities in how the two may or may not have been connected or at least knew of one another. But it's not something that's brought up to Bahawak during questioning because at this point, police know they can't prosecute him. In the end, whether or not police or investigators believe that they have the right person, it all comes down to viable evidence, which unfortunately, in the case of Sheila Holmes, there was none. Just Edward Powick's word against everybody else. The question is, do you think Edward Pahawak is the offender in this case? Was he just messing with the police by constantly confessing and recanting? Or is there somebody out there, hidden amongst us? If you or anybody you know has any information on this case, please reach out to the New Hampshire Department of Justice Cold Case Unit, whose number I will provide in the description below. My name's Morgan Flynn, and thank you for tuning in to this episode on the case of Sheila Holmes of Dover, New Hampshire.